All right, we're in Romans chapter 9, and I want to pick up in verse 19. And I heard, I heard Ed say, he's right, this is hard stuff. <laughs> I mean, this is not an easy chapter. It's probably one of the most difficult chapters, and certainly in the New Testament uh, among the writings of Paul, but certainly even in terms of the whole Bible. Now, let me uh, real quickly remind you, a couple of you, haven't been here for a bit, or if you haven't listened online, you're not quite sure where we are. 9, 10, 11 is an important section in the book of Romans because Paul has kind of detailed the universal condemnation of all humanity and the need for justification, chapter 321 through end of chapter 6, and then the importance of the doctrine of sanctification, which is chapter 7 and 8, and that chapter 8 is just one of the most marvelous chapters in the Bible the importance of understanding the role of the Spirit in the process of sanctification, and he ends that chapter with a review of our security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus. But as you know, if you've read this chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul has an issue he has to deal with. It's his people, the covenant people of God. The Abrahamic covenant is at stake here. God make an unconditional and unilateral covenant promise to Abraham and all his seed, all of his descendants. But as Paul makes it clear at the beginning of chapter 9, my people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And if you remember, he says, I would even be willing to be anathema, accursed, eternally separated from God, if they would come to faith. And so what he has to do is he has to say, okay, I'm going to paraphrase it because that's where we are. God's unconditional covenant promise to Abraham is not in jeopardy because God's sovereignty, and this is what he's doing, he defends the free sovereignty of God to do what he wants. And so he, he's, if they have not believed that Jesus is Messiah, doesn't that mean God's program failed? That's what he's posing in verse 6, which is really an important question. Because if the Abrahamic covenant is true, and it's an unconditional covenant, that they are his people by covenant, and that in them, through them, all the world will, will hear the message of the gospel, that, you know, the, that the tremendous promise that's fulfilled in Jesus. Well, if they haven't accepted Jesus, then his program failed, right? Right. No. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, our initial thing, well, yeah, it seems weird, but this is what he shows in verses 6 uh, through, uh, through, 13, uh, through 12. You must allow God's sovereignty to work itself into your thinking. God did not promise to save, I'm going to use the language we use, to save every descendant of Abraham. Only those who come from the covenant son Isaac and those who believe. So he writes all Ishmael, and he says again, and remember, you have Jacob who has, or, uh, I mean, you have Isaac who has two sons, to Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. God chose to bless Jacob, not Esau. And he quotes from uh, Malachi chapter 3, God loved Jacob but hated Esau. And we talked about what that means. So God's sovereign, sovereignty in history means God chooses to bless some, chooses not to bless others. That's the right way to say that. So 
That's what he's done so far. And then in verse 14, which we covered last week, through verse 18, he anticipates question. So that question, if that's what happened, that God chose whom he would bless, Isaac, and then through Jacob, that's unfair. That's unjust. That doesn't reflect justice. That reflects about, and, and here's, what, here's what he does. He defends the sovereign freedom of God. And in defending the sovereign freedom of God, he brings up you know, the, the question of Pharaoh. He does that in verse, verse 17. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Because what, what, what Paul's doing, he says, listen, God, God deals with us on the basis of great, us meaning all human beings, on the basis of his grace and mercy. And when God withdraws his mercy and grace, the heart of the human being hardens. That is not God's fault, because they didn't deserve his grace and mercy in the first place. So he showed Pharaoh, this is the illustration he's using, he showed Pharaoh his mercy and grace. The the initial plagues were all to get Pharaoh's attention. I am the one true and only God. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he's saying. And he turns the Nile River into blood, the plague of the frogs, etc. All those plagues. What are they to show? This is the power of God revealed. What are you going to do with that, Pharaoh? Well, he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. And then he crosses that line that only God knows, and God then hardens his heart for his glory, for God's glory. And so what he's doing is, this is really an important principle. As God withdraws his mercy and grace in a person's life, that person's heart hardens. They chose to harden their heart. They are rejecting God's grace. And that this is a whole theme of 118 through 320. And so as Paul defends the, the sovereign freedom of God to do what he, the sovereign Lord of the universe, desires to do, we have no right to demand God's grace and mercy. Because no human being deserves it in the first place. Now, so I've just summarized where we've come. Are you with me? So this, I mean, this is this is masterful on the part of Paul, but it's hard for us, and it's hard for anybody that studies it. But it, it's an important question because I mean, I've you know been in ministry in an academic area for a long time, and these are the people that I would circulate with in certain certain uh, situations. These are the people who are saying they're always charging God being unfair. You tell me God is your, your God is good. How come and you know, all those things you can put, the civil war in Syria, the horrors of Ukraine, all of those things. If your God is so good, how come that? Well, let's talk about that. You've got to walk them through a lot of things. You and I need to be able to, to, if I can maybe put it this way, defend our idea that our God is good and our God is just and our God is fair. He's not arbitrary. We're not experiencing a God who has temper tantrums. When he has a temper tantrum, he acts unjustly. That's not our God. I mean, one more comment, then we'll get to verse 19. It's important for you to always remember this. It's a theological proposition, but it's, I think, an important one. The attributes of God, his justice, his eternality, his omniscience, uh, his 
his omnipresence, his omnipotence. I mean, all of those attributes of God, including his grace and his mercy, his compassion, and so on, are held in perfection. You understand what I mean by that? They're held in perfection. God is always perfectly just, perfectly omniscient, perfectly omnipresent, perfectly gracious, perfect, perfectly compassionate. And he's a God of justice. He's perfectly just. So his grace and mercy never contradict his justice, and his justice never contradicts. You follow what I'm saying? And that's, that's to me, I'm mean, studied this for 38 years, and that's just thing that's amazing to me, but to God, about our God. These, these attributes of God are held in perfection, and they never contradict one another. And the, the, the thing to always remember, if I can put it this way to help you see it in an illustration, is the cross illustrates the perfection of God's grace and mercy and the perfection of his justice. Don't they? God is being perfectly just. Sin requires a penalty. Death. That's what God said to Adam and Eve as he as he. Uh, gives them those instructions about being stewards over his world. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you do, you shall die. That's the penalty. So someone has to pay the penalty. Perfect justice demands that. But God loves us and cares for us, and so therefore, instead of punishing all of us and eternally separating himself from us, he provides a way for us to have a relationship with him so that his perfect justice and his perfect love and perfect grace are met. And that's only in Jesus who dies on the cross for us, satisfying that just demand. Somebody has to die. And Jesus died in our place. And so you, you start, that's, that's how you start. So whatever Paul is doing here, he's trying to defend the sovereign freedom of God to do what he wants to do. And he's not unjust, as we're going to hear in just a minute, he's not unfair. And if you can't adhere to that and believe that, even though it stretches you, you have a distorted view of God. No one is ever going to, at the great white throne judgment, which will be the judgment for unbelievers, no one is going to be able to stand before God and say, you are being unfair to me. You're being unjust to me. The Bible says the books are open. Jim. The evidence. Jim, this is Woody. Yes, Woody. Uh, I, I had a question. Um, I'm taking notes here, and I wrote that God is perfect in every way, including mercy. Would that be That's right? That's right. All of his attributes are held in perfection. That's right. Well, okay, Woody. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of up to the person if they fall away or you know you can't you couldn't blame God if he no longer had mercy. I don't know. Uh, yes. Now, now, are you you're bringing up what we were uh, talking about before we officially began the class? Are you talking about that matter of someone losing their salvation? Or is that what you're where God? No. Oh, yeah, I, I was talking about the matter of somebody losing their salvation, falling away from the church and their beliefs and just turning their back on God. 
Okay. Um, well, you can't uh, blame God then, right? Yeah. But again, uh, let's let's think about that in this way. If if the person you're just hypothetically saying this, Woody, but if the person has genuinely put their faith and trust in God, and they turn away from God, they reject things that He does, reject and and, and say, I. I, I don't want to live the way he wants me to live, and I'm going to live the way I want to live. They now are candidates for God's discipline. In other words, if I can put it this way, Woody, for the believer, go back to the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has his whole list of things. If that person, if that person genuinely put their faith in Christ, they are part of the new covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. We've talked about that before. So the covenant stipulations of that relationship, what he means, that God, out of his love, will discipline that person. He won't take back the gift of salvation, but he will discipline that person to bring that person back to their point of, their, of, of that vital relationship with him. There's a difference between discipline and losing your salvation, or losing your standing, or losing your position with the Lord. In God's perfection of his mercy and grace, he disciplines those whom he loves. I'm quoting from Hebrews 4. He disciplines those who are his children. Again, I'm quoting from Hebrews 12. So that's the difference, whereas an unbeliever, if they continue to reject God's grace and mercy, there is a point, only God knows that point, that there's a point where he withdraws that grace and mercy. Okay, Woody? I got it. Thank you. All right. Um, a child, let's take a baby and use the same concept and just summarily deal with this baby. This baby was born uh, today. This baby is going to grow up and be an adult. So can you take the, the concept that you're using and then when, okay, so the baby dies after a week or the baby dies after 15 years of age. Or, you know, can you just in broad strokes put into application a newborn baby's life until he dies? Um. I'm, I'm not sure. I understand your words, Fred, but I'm not sure the question you're asked, what you're asking me to do. To, to... In other words, taking the same application that you're using, uh, uh, Jim, that he comes to Christ or he doesn't come to Christ, oh. and the revelation perhaps shown to him as he's growing up as a child, or what he hears, and then he reaches in, maybe the age where we decide maybe is 12 or so. Um, whatever that age is, and then he lives out a natural life and dies, having or having not been under the grace of God, having an opportunity to come to you. And then, can you kind of walk through that? Well, well, yeah, the... The way in which the scriptures talk about uh, human life, there are two very important uh, propositions. Number one is that all human beings bear the image of God. 
That's Genesis 126. It's repeated in a lot of other places. So there's the worth and value, the distinctive difference between a human being and, and any other uh, part of the kingdom that God's created, the animal kingdom. The second thing is that life begins at conception. And so from that moment of conception, that's first 130, Psalm 139, verse 16. Therefore, that life, which is creating the image of God, has infinite worth and value to God from the moment of conception. And if that baby dies in the mother's womb, that baby, in my judgment, goes to be with the Lord. Uh, I, I, can't, I think I can defend that, but that's not my point right now. That baby is born and now begins life outside the womb. That baby is still of infinite worth and value to God, but that baby is also a sinner. But until that baby reaches, this is not a biblical concept or a biblical phrase, but it's a concept, an age of accountability where that person can decide and, and, and clearly understand the difference between right and wrong. And that if I do this, it's wrong, and this is a consequence. I do this, and it's, it's not. It's, it's something that, but that person then has to make a decision of what they're going to do with Christ. If they live in an area where it's hard for them to know about Jesus, they have God's creation, they have God's human conscience, and they have God's moral law, which the Catholic Church calls God's natural law, which is instinctive to every human being. And so it's how they respond to that. If they respond to that, God can share some more revelation. But if that child grows up to an adult, lives 70 years, dies, and they've never trusted the Lord, they will see for eternity the logical consequence of the choices they made. They've rejected God. They've rejected his revelation over and over and over again. Therefore, God will say, this is what you've chosen. This is where you'll spend eternity. Did I answer your question? Yeah, that's good. Thank you very much. Now, let's finally get to the Bible. It's 10 <laughs> after 12. Verse 19. The second, the second thing Paul does here is, now, based on everything he's been doing about defending the sovereignty of God and the sovereign freedom of God, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And so the implication is that God's being unfair here. Who can resist his will? If he's sovereign, then who can resist his will? And then Paul says it's quite wonderful. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Now, it's, it is, it's instructive. Who are you, oh man, reminding the objector who stood up and said, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying God's really unfair because who can resist his will? That's not fair. And he says, no, wait a minute. You finite, rebellious human being, who are you to answer God, answer back to God, to challenge God? And then he illustrates with a potter. He's drawing from clearly Jeremiah 18, but of a potter. What will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God designed to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured much patience with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory. 
Now, this again, this is not easy. But I encourage you to note a couple of terms here in these rhetorical questions that Paul's been asking. He uses the illustration, which again is used in Jeremiah 18, of a potter and the clay. You know, a potter, you know what I mean by it, don't you? So the potter makes a clay urn or a clay pot or something. Does the pot say that, why did you make me this way? That's ludicrous. No, no pot is going to say that. The potter knows exactly what he wants to do, does all the things that a potter does and makes the, makes the clay and shapes it and then puts it in a kiln and hardens it, hardens it and all that stuff. This is exactly what the potter wanted to do. And what he's doing is he's saying God's sovereign freedom to do what he wants to do is his right. Now, that's not hard to understand because that's the analogy that Paul is using. But he then brings something else up. He brings up the term wrath. You see it in verse 22. And he brings up the term mercy in verse 23. What does that do? What does that remind us of? That reminds us that God, the sovereign Lord of this universe and this world, exhibits the attribute of wrath and exhibits the attribute of mercy. And he exhibits the attribute of wrath to those of dishonorable use. That's the end of verse 21. And he exhibits his mercy to those of honorable use in the middle of verse 21. But do you notice something else? Connected to God's wrath, and now in verse 22, connected to God's wrath is his patience. God is a God of wrath. That attribute of his wrath is destined for those who he's created of dishonorable use. But as God will work out his attribute of wrath, it's not a temper tantrum that's impulsive. It is God responding to evil, to sin, to rebellion, after patiently, patiently enduring those prepared for destruction. When I have studied the kings of Israel, which is in First and Second King, or if you just want to study Judah, First and Second Chronicles, First and Chronicles, just about Judah, the Southern Kingdom, the First and Second Kings. I am I am just amazed at how long God endures this stuff. You know, it just He just keeps doing it. You have terrible king after terrible king after terrible king, and the prophets come in and say, "If you don't stop it, God's going to judge." But they keep doing it, and I'm just thinking, God, you know, and you're all very thankful this isn't true. But if I were God. It would have lasted one king. That'd have been it. That'd have been it. That's it. But he's just patiently, patiently enduring. So again, what I said earlier, in as we were talking at the very beginning, every one of God's attributes is held in perfection. And so his attribute of wrath, which is destined for those of dishonorable use, who've been prepared for destruction, God patiently endures, patiently endures. And you see that in all, I mean, I, I think of 
you know, this is maybe not a very good example. Let's just use it nonetheless. Think of Adolf Hitler. 1933, he's elected chancellor of Germany. He says, we're going to build a thousand-year Reich. How long did it last? Twelve years. The 12 years was too long. What he did in those 12 years, I mean, it was the worst catastrophe in human history, World War II, and then all the things of the Holocaust. I mean, if I were God, I'd have shut it off. I'd have stopped him in 1934. I'm not sure he didn't made it through 33. But see, God, this is what, what Paul is saying is God patiently endures the exercise of his wrath for those prepared for destruction. They, this is where they're headed, but God patiently endures. And yet, those of mercy, he, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared for glory. God has prepared destruction for those who will be the objects of his wrath, but he's prepared glory for those who have accepted his mercy. So is God being unfair? No. He's a long-suffering, patient God. But there comes a day when he says, that's, that's it. Now I will deal with you. Only God knows that line. Only God knows when that's going to occur. And so what Paul was trying to do, because here's our creator God, sovereign Lord of the universe. Don't charge him with being unfair. He's created a world in which there is the possibility of rebelling and defying him. But there's also the possibility for those who rebel and defy him, which is every human being, to experience the benefits of his mercy if you accept it. But if you don't, you will be the object of the That's the way God... So God has created, and this is another one of the major points, God has created a just universe. His universe is a just universe. And uh, this, I'm not the only one who says this. Heaven, eternal life with him, so on, is also an important manifestation of his love and his compassion. But hell is a perfect manifestation of his justice. That's hard truth for people. For some people, that's a very hard truth to accept that. But that's because if, if God's justice means anything, then those who defy him, there has to be a consequence. And that's, that's, in effect, the way we are to think about the kind of universe God made. Um, well, I'm not saying more. I could is, do. Isn't the scripture that says that he is not Lord? In, 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 in fact, Peter, first Peter, actually. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. That's the right-hand side of the railroad track. That's love. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's his, but he created a universe in which those image bearers of his are not robots. They're automatons. And you remember the railroad tracks. This stuff, most of this stuff focusing on the right-hand side of the railroad tracks, focus on divine sovereignty. Coming up in chapter 10 is the focus on human responsibility. Chapter 10 is about responsible freedom. Chapter 9 is about God's sovereignty. Chapter 9 is the right-hand side of the road track. Chapter 10 is the left-hand side of the road track. 
All right, your silence means you have no idea what I've been saying for the last 20 minutes, or your silence means you're with me. Another way to phrase it is yes. we are always trying to see around the thing, but we aren't going to be able to see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're always trying to set ourselves up to stop, and we're not. That's right. That's right. That's, that's a really important uh, important comment, Bill, that we, we always have to step back and say, I'm not God. I may think what he's doing, that doesn't make sense to me, Lord. That seems unfair to me, Lord. Okay, step back and say, but if you're really a sovereign Lord, then these things are under control, and you have purposes that only eternity will explain. That's part of faith. That's hard. I told you about this couple in our church. Uh, he had one bout with cancer, colon cancer. Now it's come back with a rage. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty serious. It, unless God does something, it would seem as if probably this will take his life. It's a young family. He's got three little children. And I have had a lot, several conversations with the Lord. And they're saying, you know, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. This is a sterling couple. I mean, just tremendous couple. But, you know, is God God? He is. He is. So you have to say, I don't understand this, Lord. I could really be angry with you, and I've experienced a little bit of that. I could really be very frustrated with you, Lord. But I have to stop. I am not you. But I have to trust you. And this is what Luke and Heather are doing. They don't understand it, but they're, they're, if you ever look at their pay, their care page, fantastic. What a testimony to the Lord they really are. So, I mean, it's, that's, we have to stop. I am not God. And I have eyes of the choice where I can be railing and angry with God, or I can say, Lord, I don't understand it. I'm pretty frustrated, but I still have to trust you. And in some way, and I really do believe this, don't you think that eternity will make sense of this? Honest, just honest interaction with God when we have those feelings? Unquestionably. And I, I've said this many times. If you get an example, is read some of the Psalms. The Psalmist is the Psalmist sometimes really ticked off at God and doesn't hide it. <laughs> Says some pretty mean things to God, quite frankly. But the, the Psalmist always comes back to I don't have anywhere else to go with this except to you. And so, Lord, I'm back worshiping you, love you, trust you. I, I think of it in, in light of the, I, I don't understand it, and I don't like it, all those situations. But God knew us before we even formed in the mother's womb. So there's a plan. That's, yeah, that's yeah. I can rationalize that. That's, that's good. Yep. Which is, again, it's an amazing thought that God knew me in my mother's womb. Before. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, yeah, even the eternity. Before the eternity, you know, the foundation of the world, he, he knew you. Wow. Unbelievable. All right, now, uh, can I go on? Well, I'm not, I'm going on. <laughs> Verse. <laughs> Has prepared beforehand for glory, the, the vessels of mercy, so on. And then, okay, now I have to explain. Yes, I get a little more. Even us, whom he called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Now that is really an important part of his argument now, chapter nine, because God's grace and God's mercy has not only extended to the Jews, which you see that with the Abrahamic Covenant, 
but to the Gentiles as well. And that was hard truth to the Jews of the first century. That was very hard truth for them. And then to illustrate this, it's somewhat obscure, but it it certainly works. He quotes from Hosea, chapter 2, and he mixes chapter 2.10 and 2.23 and and chapter 1, verse 10. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. The very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And what Paul is doing, he's taking that, that, those two passages from the book of Hosea, an Old Testament minor prophet, taking those two passages and saying, my people are the Jews. The people who are not my people, the Gentile, will be called together the sons of the living God which is very much a New Testament concept. And he continues, quoting from Isaiah chapter 10. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That is a phrase you ought to underline. That is an extremely important phrase. He is going to develop that in chapters 10 and 11. A remnant will be saved. Now, this is what's astounding about his quotation from Isaiah chapter 10, is remember, Isaiah lived about 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ came, 700 years before Paul wrote this, that even then, Isaiah is declaring only a remnant will be saved. And so in your note packet on page 21, I gave you, it's a copy of PowerPoint slide, I gave you a little chart that helps you to see that when God made the covenant promise to Abraham, star, numerous of stars in the skies, sand in the seashore, going to give you that, and in you all the nations will be blessed. And this is back to the beginning part of chapter 9. God did not promise to save every single Jew. Now Paul is declaring what God does do, and this is true in every, every ethnic group in history, God always has a remnant of people who do respond to him. And even Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, declared only a remnant of them will be saved. So here's that, you know, the, probably the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, 66 chapter, massive book. Is declaring something that's a proposition of God. And here's that mixture of divine sovereignty, human responsibility, working itself out. But God promised one thing and one thing only. I will always have a remnant. He's going to be talking more about this remnant as we get into the next chapters. For the Lord will carry, I'm continuing now, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Wow. There he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Now, again, being a little technical here, but the word offspring takes you back to this. The Greek word is sperma. You get a word sperm from that. But the offspring goes back to the beginning of chapter 9, where not every child, techna, of Abraham is an offspring, a sperma. 
And so what I now follow me here, what Isaiah is saying is that remnant is strategic to God. Because there hadn't been that remnant, we, the Jews, would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have deteriorated that far in our rebellion against God. But you wish I had a remnant. And you see that in the monarchy. You see that in First Second King, First Second Chronicles, history of Judah. God always has a remnant. He's always, always have people that are faithful to him. And every now and then in the monarchy, you have a good faithful king like Hezekiah or Josiah or Jehoshaphat or some of these other really good kings. But he's saying something. If there was not a remnant, the deterioration would be so rapid, you would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's think about that in the new covenant. Who is the prime, what is the prime institution of the new covenant? The church. Now think of how Jesus puts it. He says to the church, you are my salt, you are my light. What is salt? Well, you and I and Omaha Nebraska think of that which you should put on an Omaha state. Don't think about that in terms of the ancient world. Only the very, very upper crust of society could do that. Salt was something you bought and you used to preserve. You packed salt in meat. You packed salt in, in certain vegetables that would cure it quickly. And it prevented, you know, I'm not sure they understood it this way scientifically. It prevents bacteria from growing. But they knew that it preserved. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, what does that mean? You're the remnant. And wherever you are, you're preserving you're preserving the culture from further deterioration. So the more members of the church there are, the less deterioration you see. The less members of the smaller the remnant, what will you see? Greater deterioration. That's what concerns me about North America in 2022, because the church is declining. And I, I mean numbers. There's still a lot of fantastic things going on, praise the Lord. But you see what I'm saying? I studied a number of years ago, I studied the Fourth Great Awakening, which is in the 1950s, after World War II and the beginning of the Cold War and everything. There was a massive revival. Billy Graham was part of that. And this is an almost an unimaginable statistic. But you know in the 1950s, church attendance was in the 80th percentile. In the 80th percentile, 80%, 82% or so. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine that 82% of Americans were going to church? I mean, that would, we wouldn't know what to do. I mean, it would be a, it would be a wonderful problem to have, but that, so doesn't, that's not the case. And we're still, I'm very concerned about the millennials and especially Gen Z, which is the generation following. They are not committed to the institution. They're not committed to the institution of the church. They may tip their hat at God, but they're really not committed to the institution of the church. And if they're not, what's going to happen to their children? And what I'm saying is, God is saying here through Isaiah, and Paul is using him, if God did not have a remnant in Israel, 700 B.C., we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. My son now lives, my son, as you know, is in business in, in London, where he and his family live. 
Only 3% of people in England go to church. The churches in England are, are really, they're museums. It's really what they are. I mean, we've been to church a couple of times with them. And, and uh, uh, one time we just went, when they were, we were down Winchester, and we went to, it's a great Winchester Cathedral, a marvelous, marvelous cathedral. One of my favorites in England. But, you know, that Sunday morning, there were probably 40 people there. This massive cathedral, 40 people. The guy, the guy's an Anglican church, you know, the State Church of England. He, he really gave a good message. It really was. It was a good message. But I'm thinking, this place should be packed. But see, the remnant, the remnant in England is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Same thing's happening in much of Western Europe. Germany, which was the center of the Reformation. I, you know, I'm just saying all that because what, what God is saying here through Paul, as he quotes Isaiah, is having a remnant, which is part of God's design and purpose, is an act of his grace. Because without the remnant, it becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that raises a really important theological question. If the rapture of the church is before the tribulation, which is the view I would defend, Think of what earth will be like without the church, without that remnant. Does that help you understand the severity of the seal judgments followed by the trumpet judgments followed by the bowl judgments and the rise of this megalomaniac called the beast, Revelation 16, or Revelation 13, which 1 John 2, 18 called the animal. You know, when you have a grand pause, you're in my goodness, class, it's important that we reach out to our most convicting verses in the scriptures is in Judges chapter 2 verse 24 and following. Joshua has died. The elders, leaders of the tribes and clans of this, command the 12 tribes that received their land grant, Canaanite, all that stuff was behind them. And it's the next generation, it's what it says. And the generation arose who did not know the Lord and did not know the great things he had done for Israel. Next verse, and they abandoned the Lord. The first the paragraph is and they served the Lord. And you go down, I guess four verses, and they abandoned the Lord and began to whore after the Baals and Asteroids. A quote. Exactly your point. If we do not take seriously our children and our grandchildren, and a generation goes rise up that did not know the Lord and did not know the great things the Lord had done for his father. That's why I think church history is really important. I'm serious, because church history reminds us of the great things God has done in the last 2,000 years. The Old Testament reminds us of the great things God did for Israel. Oof. So you're with me? This is great. This is really important stuff. Really important stuff. All right, now, do you think we can conclude this chapter? Let's try, Okay. In nine minutes, I'm going to try to do this. What shall we say then? So he's pulling this together. 
the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness. That is a righteousness that's by faith. Justification by faith. Theme of the book of Romans. But Israel, her pursuit of law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. You cannot please God without faith. It is impossible, the book of Hebrews says, to please God without faith. But it was based on works. And so you see this contrast. The Gentiles who were not seeking the Lord found righteousness that comes by faith. Those who are not my people have become my people. That's what he just quoted up in, in verse 25. How did that happen? By faith. They believed the message. And God declared them righteous. In contrast, the Jewish people, Israel, pursued a law that was good, perfect, and righteous, Romans 7, 12. But they did not succeed in reaching because they didn't do it by faith, but by works. They developed that horrific idea that you can earn and merit the favor of God by doing stuff. Of course, that's the indictment of Pharisaic legalism. And so Paul is just saying, and, and, and what, what, ultimately, what was the problem? Next verse. They stumbled over the stumbling block. Who's the stumbling block? Jesus. Jesus. And any quotes from Isaiah, again, chapter 8, actually combining Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that's another, that's another metaphor that runs throughout the Old Testament. The stumbling block, the stumbling block. God, this rock of offense. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, to the Jewish people, the cross is a stumbling block. It's an offense. Our Messiah doesn't go to the cross. But to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. That becomes wisdom when they embrace it by faith. And so he's, he's brought it all now kind of back to, to, to the full circle. The issue, the fundamental issue is unbelief. That's the fundamental problem. In God, and he now, and he's, this, the reason this is important, he's now transitioning. I used my analogy. He's now transitioning from the right-hand side of the railroad track the left-hand side of the railroad track. He's now transitioning from the divine sovereignty of the Lord of the universe, who has the right to do what he wants to do, but he never does it in such a way where it's unfair or unjust, that's what he's been arguing, to now the responsibility of the human being to respond to that. And that's what he's going to start to do in chapter 10. Because he has to say, okay, Paul, you have been focusing on the sovereign freedom of God. You've defended it. You've shown us he's not just, unjust. He's not unfair. But Paul, really, when it all distills down, we're really not free, are we? 
This was something you had destined. This was going to reject Jesus anyway. Paul is going to say, no, no, no. Israel is culpable for its rejection of Jesus. And this is why, and I've studied this stuff for 38 years, 39 years, and I still feel the tension. You stress God's sovereignty, but you still must stress human responsible freedom. Can you put those two things together? Satisfactorily? I mean, I, I'm hoping you're following on my question. That is really hard to put those two things together. The sovereignty of God and the responsible freedom of the human being. They're both true. And so Paul's now transitioning from the focus on God's sovereignty, which he has defended, to now the responsible freedom. Israel is culpable. They have rejected him, and they're culpable for that. But he's going to ask that next question, which is chapter 11. Then there's no hope for Israel. Ah, oh, yes, there is. That's the theme of chapter 11. We're not there yet. It's getting, it's getting cooler out, but it's awfully warm in this room. Yeah. All right. Is everyone with me? Okay, we have four minutes. Now, he, he begins with this uh, quite tender and compassionate statement. Brothers, brothers and sisters, it's a gender neutral word. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And the pronoun them is referring back to Israel. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. What does that mean? What does zeal mean? When was the last time you heard someone use the word zeal in a sentence? Or zealous? What does that mean? Huh? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Energy. Excitement. Something the Nebraska football team lacks, right? <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Russ, you don't know what we're talking about there in the West Coast. <laughs> the state of Nebraska is in dismal depression. Counseling sessions have gone through the roof. Psychiatrists are making a fortune. We're, we're missing Tom Osborne greatly. That's yeah, what you're yeah. telling me. That's one way of putting it, yes. That's right. <laughs> but he's, he's saying something about Israel. They have a zeal for God. Paul had zeal for God before he came to Christ. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, where he gives all of his credentials as a Jew, Hebrew the Hebrews, Pharisee, etc., in, in chapter 23 of the book of Acts, he says, I persecuted, the, I persecuted the church out of a good conscience. He had zeal for God. Notice, but not according to knowledge. Now, I think you would agree, knowledge is a content word. You know what I mean by that? Knowledge implies content. Knowledge is a body, a block of truth that you must believe, you must embrace. You know, the knowledge of gravity is a force of the universe that keeps things moving, etc., etc. I believe in that force. That governs the actions that I engage in. Well, he's not talking here about the laws of the physical universe. He's talking about, he's talking about the knowledge 
that relates to Jesus, which takes you back to the end of chapter 9. They had the zeal, but they didn't have the right knowledge. Is that, is that the prophetic, all the prophetic books of the Old Testament, is that the, the basis of that knowledge? I, that's correct. We'd be based on all the prophetic material in the, in the Old Testament. That's right. You know, I've known, uh, I've known a lot of people in my life that have zeal. But they don't have knowledge. They don't have the correct knowledge. They don't have the full knowledge. That's why you have to be very, very careful. A person who just comes to know Christ generally, generally speaking, they're zealous. Don't give them responsibility yet. Don't make them an elder. I mean, that's an exaggerated statement, but you know what I mean? Because zeal must be matched with an increasing understanding of knowledge. Another way to put that would be doctrine and the teachings of the scriptures and so on. I'm almost out of time here. But I want to use an illustration that really illustrates the point Paul is making here. When I was in, in higher education in the school that I led, there was a young guy who, fantastic guy. He had come to know Christ about a year and a half before he started the, the, the institution. So he's a new believer. He, he was just excited about his faith and so on. And every, every uh, beginning of the second semester, we always had a missions conference. And uh, the, one of the, there were always multiple speakers, but one of the guys who was representing a particular camp up in Alaska, and this guy was so excited about that. And what he decided to do was he dropped out of school, sold everything he had, bought a plane ticket, flew up to Alaska, entered the camp, said, I'm here. And the camp director looked at him and said, okay, what do you want? Well, I want to serve. I, I want to lead in the camp. And the, the guy looks at him and says, you are not ready. You have lots and lots of zeal, but you don't have the knowledge we want you to have. Go back to school. Get your training. Then come and knock on my door. And that's one of the, the Bible says to us over and over again, zeal without knowledge, setting someone up for defeat. Now, the, the Jews had the zeal but they didn't have the proper knowledge. Knowledge about whom? About Jesus. And so this is what he's going to start to do in the verses that follow. How did God, how did God deal with this? And what he's going to begin to demonstrate is the zeal that Israel had for the law was actually a detriment. And actually, they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction. Zeal without proper knowledge. Zeal for the law without proper knowledge produces legalism. A confining, restricting, defeating legalism. All right? I'm going to pray. Is that all right if I do that? Whether it is all right, I'm going to do it because I've got to get to that next class. Father, we are thankful for the book of Romans. This is hard stuff, especially chapter 9. It is just grindingly hard as we work our way through verse after verse after verse. It stretches us. But, Lord, it's valuable 
We have to be able to defend your sovereign freedom, your right to sovereign freedom as God, the Lord and sovereign of this universe. But you never act in any way that's unjust or unfair. Your attributes are always held in absolute perfection. They never contradict one another. And we have to trust you with this, even when we do not always understand your sovereign decisions and choices. And now we're beginning to transition to the other part of the railroad tracks, chapter 10, where the focus is on the culpability of Israel in rejecting Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that we will not only have zeal for you, Lord Jesus, and the zeal to tell others about you, but we also have the proper knowledge, the proper doc doctrinal foundation, because sound doctrine produces godly living. So it's the two of those together. Unbridled zeal is not always healthy, but zeal with proper knowledge, you can never stop it. So, Lord, we thank you for the teachings of the Apostle Paul, for you, Holy Spirit, who inspired it, for you, Lord Jesus, who went to the cross for us in our place, was resurrected, and Father, for being our Heavenly Father, who loves us and cares for us. So, Lord, we ask you to dismiss us now with your blessing as we go out into this world to represent you. We want to do that well to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. See you next week.